It does not mean that the product management team is leading in making all the decisions. That is definitely not product-led, right? Like on the contrary, in my opinion, product-led is a harmony of all functions in your company coming together to deliver a very thoughtful end-to-end customer experience around that specific product. So everybody in the company is part of a product-led thought process, and it's not just the product team. Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiama Hanson-Drury, Chief Product Officer at Mina Technologies and all-around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! This episode is sponsored by Flatfile. Importing customer data into your product has traditionally been a time-consuming, painful process until now. With Flatfile's data onboarding platform, product teams can better enable customers to seamlessly import their data with one simple click. Your world-class product deserves a world-class data import experience. To learn about how Flatfile's platform can help you reduce customer frustration and instantly improve time to value, go to flatfile.com slash product-led-alliance. Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am thrilled today to be joined uh, by a fantastic leader who's going to share a lot with us. Um, His name is Vibor Chabra, and he is a fintech product leader who currently owns the role of head of tax products at Shopify. Uh, If you're curious what that means, he basically looks after teams dedicated to building products at the intersection of commerce, payments, and tax, and looks after the Shopify merchants across the world. Uh, He has held a number of different roles roles, including senior roles at Evernote, Square, uh, which is now known as Block, TaxJar, and he started his career in product with T-Mobile. He focuses in his roles now and in the past on helping teams really drive business impact by being able to articulate a clear product vision and strategy, uh, helping them understand how to scale quickly, building partnerships with key stakeholders, and solving complex problems that delight their their customers, specifically in the SMB and mid-market space. Personally, I've seen uh, Vibor talk a lot about how to move fast while still prioritizing diversity and how even as a leader at his level today, he still continues to get challenged. And these are two areas that I really appreciate his contribution to the kind of global uh, product community narrative. So welcome to For the Love of Product Bewar. We're so happy to have you. Where are you Zooming in from? Uh, Thank you, Tiama. I'm excited to be here. I am based in San Francisco. Lovely. And how is San Francisco today? Uh, You know, San Francisco this time of the year is actually pretty sweet because it's not too cold. Uh, and it's bright and sunny. So yeah, San Francisco, San Francisco. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so let's jump right in, uh, Vibor. I I really love your story. And I love that we're going to talk today about some recurring themes that come up with both your own mentorship, uh, that where you're being mentored and coached, but also with the people that you coach and you mentor. Um, but before we go into kind of those recurring themes, I want to take a step back back into time. And I want to know a little bit about where you started, because when we talked about your journey, one of the most difficult points that you spoke about actually was way back at that beginning point. So take us through a little bit of your journey and the baby Vibor and what, what was going on in your life at that time. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going back in time almost uh, 13 years now, and maybe a lot of the listeners don't remember the economy in 2009, uh, but that's when I I graduated from business school in May 2009. 
And for those who remember, we were in a recession during the time. Lehman Brothers had collapsed, you know, foreclosures. It was a mess. So there were very limited job opportunities available. If you were shifting careers, that was even harder. And if you were very picky like me, your opportunities were really a handful, right? And I was very picky. So I declined a few offers from big tech companies with well-paying jobs uh, because I had this thing in my head that I wanted to work in mobile product management in San Francisco. And really, there's no background qualification for uh, for that. And uh, so anyways, I didn't have prior experience. Uh, I So I graduated without a job. Uh, and to add to it, my wife, who also completed her PhD from Duke at the same time, um, in a very niche field. So we were both looking to find jobs at the same time in San Francisco at the beginning of our careers in the middle of a reception, uh, recession. So that was a very interesting and hard time. Uh, easy to smile on now when I look back at it, uh, but it was hard then. Uh, I can imagine. Did you add points? consider being less picky and um, maybe giving up on the very specifics of what you wanted? Or were you pretty headstrong about knowing what you wanted and why? Yeah, I was, I think there were, you know, when I talk about, there were three things I was trying to achieve in the job. One was I wanted to be in product management. So that was non-negotiable. I wanted to do consumer mobile um, that was not negotiable to me. But then I also wanted to be at a startup and I wanted to be in San Francisco. So the latter two were somewhat negotiable because if I got the first two, I could figure out a path to a startup in San Francisco in due course. Um, so not at all negotiable in the first two, the latter two a little bit flexible. I asked because I think uh, people who are graduating and or making a change of career Oftentimes they do have a very clear idea of what they want. And uh, what would be interesting to hear someone like you talk about is at which point do you box yourself in uh, by being too, too kind of defined in what you want versus um, up until that point, why is it good to keep pushing for that very specific goal? Yeah, I mean, to answer that, you know, we'll have to take a step back. So when I first went to business school, right, I had this thing in my head which had nothing to do with product management, but I was going to go to a top tier consulting firm. And if I hadn't done that by the end of business school, I would have failed in my mind, right? Uh, but I was also very clear that the whole reason to go to business school was to explore, to experiment, to learn, and see what is the best decision for the rest of my career beyond business school, right? And as I explored, experimented, and learned, I realized that I'm deeply passionate about technology. And no matter what I do, eventually I'll get into tech and consulting was a segue to that eventual tech role. So if that's what I wanna do, why am I going this alternate route and why don't I directly go to tech? And I experimented with product management roles during uh, internships during my business school uh, time period. And I realized this was the perfect role. So the, how, that's how I sort of, um, are, arrived at this conclusion that product management in tech is non-negotiable, right? And the iPhone had just launched the app store ecosystem. So mobile and consumer was really something that was close to me as a consumer myself. So that's where I landed as the non-negotiable piece. And then San Francisco tech startups were like, okay, if that doesn't happen right now, we can get to that in a future timeframe. Clear. So what was the journey like then? Uh, you obviously you graduated, you wanted this job, you were having a hard time finding it. Um, where did you go from there? And, and what lessons are there for people to learn from that? 
Yeah. So first, I'd say I am so grateful to have a wife um, who was extremely supportive, who's like, yep, you don't have a job and uh, you're just sitting and waiting and trying to do the right thing for you. That's cool. And friends from business school and other places who basically put me in touch with so many people. So just the network. Um, and I, I, I don't like the word network, but the friends, people I'd worked with in the past, there was so much support that that was extremely crucial. So what I would say is, as I talk about my journey, find people who are going to you know, show you, be candid with you, be transparent with you, but also support you and be positive with you because you want to maintain that positivity, right? So after business school, we both moved, my wife and I, we both moved to Seattle because she got her dream job um, in Seattle. Uh, so at, at least one of us had a job. So we, we moved to Seattle and we put San Francisco on the back burner. And, you know, I'll not lie, when I'd be sitting at home, and my wife was at work, there were times when it felt tough. Like, hey, is this really the right choice that I'm making? Um, but like I said, the network, the friends were really supportive. My wife was supportive. So I kept pursuing opportunities that were interesting to me. Um, and finally, uh, in December 2009, right before the holidays, I received an offer from T-Mobile. It was in consumer mobile product management. It was building apps for Android, right? And again, this wasn't a startup in San Francisco, but there were three things that were very critical um, about this role. One was my manager uh, or my would-be manager, Hokan Johansson. I figured during the interview process and some back channeling that he's an amazing human being and also a great product leader. So somebody who was entering product, this combination was extremely important so I could learn. Um, second, T-Mobile has been always very pro-customer. You know, if you, when you think of carriers, you don't necessarily think pro-customer and T-Mobile definitely in my mind fits the pro-customer bucket. So that was extremely important as a product management um, candidate. And lastly, uh, my thought process was I could learn on how to actually be a product manager in a real company with PL goals. And that would set me up for an opportunity later on at a startup in San Francisco. So that's the path I chose. Do you think, uh, because do you think that all people think about how important the leadership is when making a product uh, career decision today? Or do you think that's something that people should think more about? Um, I'm curious. Yeah, so I'll actually share the advice. Uh, you know, one of the folks, one of the people I respect a ton and have learned a lot from is Gokul Rajaram. And, you know, last year I was talking to him and the thing he shared is when you're taking a new job, you should really look at who is going to be your manager and are they a leader? What is their growth path being? What is their life story, right? Like we spend a lot of time on our life story, but we don't spend enough time on what your manager's life story is. And I think folks need, people need to spend more time on figuring out what their manager's life story is and what's the intersection between their life story and your mission or your goals. So that's the piece of advice Gokul gave and it stuck in my head. Um, so I'd say, yeah, we all should spend more time on figuring out uh, who our manager is and uh, would we like to work for this person as a human and B, would we learn from this person? Absolutely. How uh, how do you try when you're, I mean, obviously you're at Shopify now, you guys are hiring like crazy. How do you try to demonstrate who you are to prospective em employees or talents that are going to join your team? What's, what's a way that you show up and show your human side to them to help them understand that intersectionality? Yeah. So, so, you know, this is a question I, 
uh, struggled with. This is back in 2014 or 15, I was at Evernote. And I'm like, how do you balance? You want to be friendly. You want to be a human with your entire team. But then does that prevent you from delivering a hard message when the time comes? And we had our chief operating officer, Linda Kozlowski. And one of the things I noticed was she knew pretty much every single person in the 500 person team really well. Um, at a human level, right? But she was extremely successful as a leader as well and never hesitated from delivering a tough message. So I asked her, how do you balance this? And the thing she shared was being open, candid, transparent, and honest, right? So I think that's the balance. You have to be yourself. You have to be authentic as a leader. So share who you are. You don't have to fit a stereotype or a mold but also be open and candid because if something's not going well, just being nice is actually unhelpful to your team, but being honest and coaching them might be helpful. So I think that's the balance that I strive to achieve, like gen being authentic and being genuine. Um, yeah. I love it. I think that that's great advice. Um, and I think it's a, it's interesting to think about, you know, how we encourage our teams to to be open and honest and concise with us, too. Do you I mean, it really falls under the, the helm of psychological safety, right? And allowing hard but honest discussions to happen. How has your comfort with that, I guess, since 2014 and starting to kind of reflect on that to now uh, where you have several years under your belt? How have you been able to put that into practice in the cultures that you've worked at? I think a lot of this depends on how you behave and how you carry yourself because you're setting an example for your team that this is the behavior that gets rewarded, I guess. And, um, you know, I'll quote a Google study on what makes successful teams. It's a fairly common uh, study that came out a few years ago. And one of the things that the study talked about was, does everybody in the team have a voice or are there few people with a title um, who have a larger voice than others. So I think it's making sure that everybody in the team has a voice and they feel safe that if they share an opinion or ask some questions, there is nothing, there's no wrong questions. There's no bad opinions. Everything is welcome. That diversity is what you want to inculcate. And it's not just a diversity of um, gender or age, but it's a diversity of opinions that you want in the team as well, right? So I think that's really key. The other thing I'd say is um, having a growth mindset. So we all we all realize that nobody in the world really knows all the answers. So most leaders don't know all the answers either. So it's about making sure that you're communicating that, that as a leader, you're also constantly learning. And also, as you learn, you might learn you a lot of times you learn from your team because somebody has done a, you know, deep exercise or due diligence on something and they'll educate you. So changing your opinion is good, too, as you get more data. So that growth mindset comes in. Right. And then being fair to people. Um, and I say that not because it's just a small world, but also because, you know, it's more fun this way if you're fair and it's, it's a fun environment to work. So I think of this as finding a team that is ambitious, but humble at the same time. There's this word ambitious that, that always comes in my head. You know, a group of humble and ambitious people uh, makes the best environment. So that, that's what I would say, like, hey, that, that's what you do with the team. 
um, and how you lead to set an example um, and foster that kind of culture in the team. I have not heard ambitious before. I like that. Is that like, uh, is that something you've trademarked or is that someone that uh, someone else uses? I think that's great. You should have that. (laughs) Honestly, I I won't take credit for it. I I think I heard this word, uh, you know, many, many years ago and it's stuck. It's just such a good word. So it's stuck in my head. Uh, It is. I I, I made this word up. (laughs) I like it. I'm going to start using it. I'm going to, I'll credit you because if you can't tell me who else it came from, it's going to you. But uh, I'm sure it was somebody way more creative than me who who came up with this word. (laughs) Whoever you are out there, get at us, tell us. (laughs) We'll give you, we'll give you the credit for it. Um, Okay. So now here we are you're working in San Francisco. So the, what you wanted to do right out of uh, grad school has happened. How did that happen? You, you obviously are no longer in Seattle. So tell us a little bit about the arc and the stops along the way. Yeah. So it was, yeah, you know, chronologically it was in 2012 where one day I decided, what am I doing? It's been, you know, three years since I graduated. Have I forgotten my dream or mission? Uh, so you know, again, with the support of my wife, I, I I came to San Francisco, spent a week, met as many people as I could, right? Stayed with a friend and literally everybody I knew, I could ask for an introduction. I did. I did so many cold LinkedIn emails, but very uh, specific, right? And that's the thing about San Francisco that really amazed me. The response rate on completely cold emails to complete strangers was amazingly high. I had not expected that. People met for coffee, made introductions. So that was the thing where let's, you know, make a leap of faith, take a chance, reach out if you really are, you know, passionate about something and um, people are willing to help. So that's how that move to San Francisco started and uh, eventually uh, got a break, uh, you know, got a few offers, got a break at a startup in, in San Francisco, Sugar Sink. And I'd say learned a ton because when you're working at a big company like T-Mobile, um, I learned product management there, but still a big company, a lot of resources, relatively speaking. And now you're working at a 40% startup and not a lot of resources. So wearing many hats. So that whole thing of you're wearing 10 different hats and doing many different things in a day was really, uh, you know, picked it up at Sugar Sink. Um, so that, that was the transition to like, hey, startup culture in San Francisco, um, and then just pursued that path uh, that since then. What I realized, uh, though, is, uh, you know, I work at Square in between and now uh, Shopify is a couple of things. Um, one is I talked about how I was deeply passionate about mobile consumer product management and a lesson learned for me is what, what is way more interesting is solving hard problems that actually have an impact. And so don't worry about the flavor of the day. Maybe solving hard problems today is consumer product management and tomorrow is platform, you know, something else in the future. So don't worry about the flavor of the day because that'll keep constantly changing. What you want as a product manager is the skill for develop for being able to solve very hard, ambiguous problems. And that's been really helpful. So then startup or no startup doesn't matter. Uh, You know, those things are sort of constant. You're solving hard problems everywhere. And the other thing I'd say is figure out autonomy, right? Where can you get autonomy? Uh, And autonomy comes with accountability, 
So you're going to get a lot of autonomy to make your own decisions, but you're going to be accountable for those decisions as well. So again, there are attributes of startups that are equally applicable in big company environments, as long as you find those right environments. Absolutely. So you have held roles as uh, both head of um, like a function or a product line as you do right now, but you've also held the CPO role. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, in either of those ways, kind of, I see that this leadership role is still in some cases still establishing itself. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the closer you get to the West coast of the United States, the more established it is, but I think the further you get away and we're really lucky on for the love of product, we have leaders from all around the world. So we get like these interesting snapshots across the time zones. Um, And I definitely think that depending on both the location, but also the maturity of the company, right, um, that that leadership role is still establishing itself. What's been your experience? Yeah, I think uh, when you think of head of product functions for a functional area in a large company, or you think of a CPO role at a smaller company, or even at a large company for that matter, the responsibilities may not be that different, right? Um, and what do I mean by that is, um, and it, it, it's true for most roles, but I, I think it's especially too true for product because as a product person, you have to understand what's happening in other parts of the company or your functional space or the business, right? And how all of that will impact your customer experience with the product. Because the customer experience with the product is not just you know, going to an app or a website and dealing with that, but it's the entirety of the experience um, directly and indirectly with the product, right? So are we targeting the right segments for whom the product is built from a marketing perspective, right? Are we selling what we have today as a product or what we aspire to have two years from now, right? Are the unit economics working out? Um, do we have the right pricing and packaging for the product? Is the GTM strategy in line with the product we've built, right? So like, there's just so many things. I think as a product lead or leader, you have to think about all of this to get a complete picture of where the, you know, where the product is today, how are we working with that? And where do we need to be in a few years from now? And what's our path to get there? So that's, that's what I'd say. And the other thing I'll say is a lot of the stuff that I just talked about only works if you have great feedback loops with all of these other teams. Without that, it doesn't work, right? So because I also strongly believe that the product is not the product manager's product. It is the entire company's product. Each person in the company has to take ownership and feel that they're accountable for this product, right? So everybody's got to care. So you have to have the right feedback loops so that other people in the company who are doing other jobs, it's really easy for them to provide feedback to you and you can then action upon them. And as a product manager, you might actually say no to a lot of the feedback because you can't make everything possible, but have the courtesy to close the loop on why we are saying no, so folks feel that their feedback is valued and understand why it can't be actioned about because there's 10 other things that are being worked on right now. So, so that's, that's what I would say, you know, successful, whether you're a successful CPO or a head of product for a certain function, this is the similarity there. 
So on the leadership side, when you think about who you've tended to partner with more, which leaders you tend to work with more, is it consistent function to function in each role? Uh, do you find that it changes per company? Like who are the, who are the executive or functional leaders that you, you know, are your partner in crime, if you will? Yeah. So I think of that in three concentric circles. And there's a little bit of variance. This is not true for every company. It varies from B to B versus B to C, size of the company, et cetera. But I think it, it largely uh, the sentiment holds. Like my first concentric circle would always be engineering and design, right? Product has to be in lockstep with engineering and design. This R&D team has to work really well, right? Um, sometimes in more and more you're seeing data and analytics also, it's not a triad, it's a quad, right? Um, and in certain companies, product marketing is also part of this first concentric circle because that makes the unit complete, right? So your second concentric circle then becomes your voice of customer teams. So, you know, could be product marketing could be here if it's not in your first concentric circle. Um, it's other marketing teams, sales, customer success, account management. These teams have different names and different teams and partnerships, uh, right? Uh, maybe you're working on a product that is uh, dedicated to developers. So maybe there's developer uh, teams, uh, evangelists there, right? And then the third concentric circle is finance and legal. And how closely you work with them depends on what kind of product you're working in. Uh, you know, right now I'm working on taxes. So there's a lot of closeness with working with the legal team. Uh, but in various roles, you may or may not work with them very closely. So that's how I think about this in three different concentric circles. That makes sense. Um, I, I think that one of the things that you spend a lot of time doing is coaching and, and mentoring other product leaders. And between the starting in T-Mobile and, you know, to your current space, what are some of the top lessons that you know you share or you hear those mentees asking for repeatedly because i guess i would guess that that will be interesting for our listeners as well yeah that, you know some of these are learned by doing mistakes myself and learning it the hard way some of these i learned because i had excellent mentors and coaches so uh, just last week i shared uh, you know some of this with somebody like one of the most important things to do is hire the right people fast because if you are not doing that, that means you are going to be so operationally involved in the day-to-day -day that you're not going to be able to zoom out and look at the bigger picture and connect the dots. And you need to be doing that because that is your responsibility as a head of slash CPO, right? Um, so sourcing, recruiting, building a pipeline is really essential at this role, right? Second is delegating faster than it feels right. So, so if you're delegating after the fact, it's a problem. If you're delegating and you're like, oh, I could have made it for a couple of weeks or a few months, that's actually a better position to be in because there isn't a fire drill and it's a planned delegation. And it also is really good to, you know, if you, you're hiring smart people, they are also hungry for more. So the more you delegate, the more they can actually be ready for, right? So that, that also builds a strong team, a culture of trust, uh, and accountability. And the third thing I'd say is uh, don't focus on always building because that's our default. Oh, we got to solve this problem. Let's build it. But there is the buy slash partner. So what is it, you know, are you validating something? Is this core to your product? 
Um, do you need to be vertically integrated and own everything? Or can you own the experience for something and behind the scenes work with somebody else, right? So there's a lot of build by partner opportunities coming up in fintech, so especially. So think of that as opposed to just building. And the last thing I'd say is, um, actually there's two things I'll say is, uh, look at adjacent industries. So you can learn a lot. Don't have to just look at your industry, but how are industries adjacent to you or completely different from you solving problems? Because there might be light bulbs that go off and give you some ideas and to do things differently. And then the last thing, this is actually the last thing is, uh, I think coaching other people or mentoring. So, you know, we all talk about how we should find coaches and seek their advice and feedback, but also stepping out and coaching other people because it's one way to pay it back. But also what that does is it sort of gives you a gut check and a pulse check of how various people are feeling, which may also be a representative of how your team feels or does and may not you know, say that directly. So it's a really good way to understand how, how different folks are feeling and learn from that and adapt uh, based on that, in addition to just helping people um, in your field or in HSN fields. Those are great pieces of advice. And I'm sure whoever you gave them to was uh, grateful to have them. So um, so let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, you have worked on both what I would call uh, product-led um, products. And then you've also worked for uh, maybe products that required a traditional sales uh, motion or a hybrid motion. Can you talk to us about you know the way you think about and define a product versus the way you think about and define kind of product-led, which is a very buzzworthy uh, kind of topic. And of course, PLA being our sponsor, we talk a lot about it. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear your thinking. Yeah. So, you know, when I think of products, to me, a product immediately brings this word into my mind is delight, that it makes you want to use it again and again. Like you want to find excuses to use the product, right, is, is, is how I think of a product. It makes you want to tell others about your experience with it, right? And you sort of, a good product will anticipate the needs of the audience and solve those needs in a way that the customer may not even have thought about it was possible, right? And I think good products do that by um, first understanding, you know, with laser focus, who is their customer and what jobs these customers want to solve in their given context, right? Um, Uber to me is an excellent example here. Look, all Uber does, you can say, is take you from point A to B like taxi cabs did before. But oh my God, the delight of that is amazing, right? And hence, you really don't see taxi cabs that commonly anymore. It's Uber or Lyft everywhere, right? So that is an example of a good product, taking a problem and making the entire end-to-end experience so delightful that it replaces the existing products that existed before and brought delight to a large um, percentage of consumer uh, customers, both drivers and riders, right? And uh, shifting gears to product-led, um, this also has, uh, you know, product-led is also a little controversial because it gets mistaken for product is leading and making every decision sometimes. And that's that's not necessarily true, right? To me, the product, to me, product-led means that the product speaks for itself. Um, that you're building this delightful experience we just talked about for certain customer segments. So it's so intuitive to use and try that people are using it 
not because somebody forced them to use it, but because they, they want to, they enjoy it, right? And I want to double click on this thing that it does not mean that the product management team is leading in making all the decisions. That is definitely not product-led, right? Like on the contrary, in my opinion, product-led is a harmony of all functions in your company coming together to deliver a very thoughtful end-to-end customer experience around that specific product. So everybody in the company is part of a product-led thought process, and it's not just the product team. Absolutely. Uh, earlier when we were talking about kind of your role as CPO or head of product and, um, you know, kind of the feedback loops, I loved the fact that you brought up that the product is not the product manager's product, right? It's the company's product. And I think that that's one of the things that, at least when I speak with companies who are considering entering a PLG motion, they really have to understand uh, is that if you're going to do a PLG product, it, it does need to have anyone who's customer facing or commercially related, they have to have a vested interest. They have to see themselves in that product and then that stakeholder management process. Yeah, I, I'll absolutely say like, I, I like this term voice of customer teams mm-hmm. because the teams that are selling every day, the teams that are dealing with customers directly or indirectly could be customer support, could be account management, could be sales, right? Various marketing functions. They have so much of insight about how customers feel, what problems they're dealing, why are we successful, right? So gleaning those insights is so critical to being product-led. You can't really be product-led if these voice of customer teams don't have a seat at the table and have a strong voice in influencing the product strategy. Absolutely, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Related to that in some ways uh, is, you know, and I, you talked a bit about it earlier with it's not diversity with a, you know, a capital D, it's actually diversity in a small D in terms of different ways of thinking, different perspectives, different backgrounds, different ways of even are we are we focusing on the right problem, right? Um, before we even talk about diverse ways of solving the problem. So uh, can we talk a little bit about how you try to prioritize diversity while still moving fast? Um, Because I think that it's something that uh, people deal with all the time. I talk with my, my, my friends and, you know, colleagues in the industry about, you know, gosh, I really want to hire somebody who's diverse for this role. I'm not getting in any candidates, you know, and I think we can talk about kind of the standards, which is like, give your recruiting teams direct mandates that you expect a diverse pipeline and take time for it. But talk to us about your approach, because I think it's something people really struggle with, myself included, right? Uh, And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you prioritize that, how you try to be mindful of it, uh, or you struggle with it. Yeah, so I'll be honest, I haven't cracked the code on how do you solve for diversity, um, you know, 100%. So I'm still learning. Uh, in fact, just two weeks ago, I pinged uh, somebody in our organization uh, and I asked for her feedback, like, hey, how do you prioritize for diversity, right? Um, so, but the thing I'd say is a few things that have worked are, number one, you can't be thinking about, for this role, I need diversity. You either need diversity or you're not for diversity, right? So diversity has to be a core philosophy in recruiting, it it cannot be specific to only these three roles, we need diversity and others, it's okay, right? So it's it's a mindset, right? The second thing is, um, earlier we talked about how important it is for product leaders to invest time in coaching and mentoring upcoming 
um, leaders or product managers, right? That's a really great resource, right? If you are mentoring and coaching people, take the time to build a diverse pipeline of mentee, right? And that in itself is extremely critical because in today's uh, time, people who are in diverse backgrounds, they have a ton of opportunities. So the demand supply is a little bit imbalanced, right? There's a lot of opportunities um, if you are a diverse candidate, right? So what you wanna do is you wanna showcase that your company, you as a leader, are not just checking a diversity box somewhere because that's not sincere, that's not authentic, that by your actions outside of just this hiring process, you actually do sincerely believe in diversity. That could be by mentoring, by coaching, uh, by helping out in other ways, but have some concrete ways of doing that. For me, it's mentoring and coaching, right? Um, and then the, the third thing I'd say is uh, sourcing. The same way I talked about me reaching out to random strangers on LinkedIn for, hey, can you help me with this, right? Reach out to random strangers on uh, LinkedIn who you think would be great candidates for your organization, not just your team, right? And you're helping the company source them. And maybe they're not looking for a job today, but they may look for a job in a year from now. So you're, you want to build that connection as well. And uh, so I think those are the things that have been extremely helpful. And I, again, I'll re-emphasize, this is an area that I'm myself learning, how do I get better um, at, at making sure that diversity isn't something that is a flavor of the season, but it's something that's part of the core philosophy. And I'll, I'll add a plug for Shopify here, uh, not because I'm, I'm at, I work at Shopify, so I should do that, but I'll say this is one of the most diverse companies I've ever worked at, right? Like you look at the diversity of opinion and there's this really good talk that Atlee did um, um, and it's on YouTube where there's a wheel of diversity. And that's where it's not just about one thing, but diversity means, you know, 50 different things. And I think Shopify is very intentional and methodical about how do we ensure that that overall diversity exists at the company. I love that. Uh, we'll try to put the wheel in the show notes for people uh, so that That'd they awesome. can take a look at it. Okay. Um, Moving into uh, the end of our discussion, I have two questions for you. Um, one is one of the things that you and I talked about uh, preparing for this is that we were going to talk about how, you know, whether it's in the beginning of your career and feeling imposter syndrome or whether it's, you know, having been a CPO and still having challenges that you have to struggle with. The point is uh, that struggles will come your way. And I'd love to hear how you approach that as an individual uh, or as a leader um, or both for people to, to gain from your experiences in that space? So I think 100% uh, true. There is absolutely no level or no title or no role or responsibility where you're not going to be challenged. In fact, if you're not getting challenged, probably in the wrong spot, right? So how, you, how do you deal with that? Is first just this humility that it's okay to not know right? Um, no matter what your role is. And so I think that humility is very important. Um, and sometimes saying like, look, hey, I actually don't know how to uh, think about this. I'm going to come back and, you know, take some time to think and come back to this, right? Uh, and making some dedicated space. This is a, this is a discipline thing. 
every week, do you have a dedicated chunk of time to think about the problems your team or you're dealing with? And not like 30 minutes in between all these meetings, but actually a dedicated space of time, right? Uh, so that, that's one practice, right? Second practice is who are people in who have solved those kind of problems in the past, especially the really hard problems, right? And can you learn from their experiences? Can you reach out to them and say, hey, you know, how did you do this? I'll give, a, I'll give an example. I joined Shopify last year. And when I joined, I uh, wrote a document on how could we solve a certain problem? Uh, it's all well and good, but I was very new to Shopify. I didn't have Shopify context, right? So I could be completely wrong in my approach. So I reached out to seven to 10 people uh, in various functions at Shopify and said, hey, here's something I've written. I would really like you to criticize this as much as you can, right? Because I, I at this point, I want to learn and I want to understand the Shopify way of doing this thing. And I got a ton of feedback. And I think over the years, you realize that's actually a really good thing. You, you, you shouldn't feel sad about it. That's great because you've identified all the places where you could fail six months from now at the onset itself. And now you can address that. So I think seeking feedback is really important and then actioning on that feed, feedback, right? Especially from folks who have solved those problems, maybe for a different area or a or, or different industry, right? And the third thing is, absolutely having uh, coaches who you work with longer term, because if you're having a low moment, having a coach uh, who can remind you, yeah, you've solved this problem, this, you know, you've run into problems many times and you've solved them really well. This time is not going to be very different. Is also really like you want to learn, but you also want that confidence boost if you're having that, that low moment that, yeah, you'll solve this problem as well. So to me, that's the combination. One thing I'll also add, this is very specific to how I think. Um, I think of myself as somebody who's not going to instantly wing it. I have to think about it, right? There are some really smart people, much smarter than me, who'll be like, oh, throw me any problem and instantly I can wing it. I cannot, I need time to think, right? And uh, one of the things I've learned is writing a document is extremely helpful. I can write a deck on something in, in, in 30 minutes, but I'm not thoughtful enough, right? But when I write a document, I have to be more detailed, more intentional. And that forces me to think the why behind the why behind the why. And that also helps me say, okay, this is the challenge I'm going after. What are the sub challenges or related challenges I'll have to solve for? And that writing as a, as a tactic is extremely helpful. And then you take those questions and go to other smarter people and say, hey, how have you solved this? Help me understand. So now I can make my you know, problem solving much better. So that's been my approach. Really, really great advice. And I think uh, very tangible for people to take away. So thank you for that. Okay. Uh, what, what I'll make it for Gokul. Yes, please. yes. Uh, I, I picked this up at Square. Gokul Rajaram has this a framework uh, called Spade. Um, and he's talked about this a fair bit. And it's a decision-making framework. As product managers, as leaders, we have a lot of decisions to make. And a lot of times those decisions, there isn't a very clear pro or con, right? Like we, we, we could make one of these three decisions to solve this and each has a very ambiguous set of pros and cons. So it's not a clear decision. And I think the spade framework makes it very easy to surface that 
to all of your stakeholders and then make the decision much faster and with a significantly higher probability of getting it right. So, you know, if we can add that to the show notes, I think it's been extremely helpful. Just for thinking. Yeah, we're going to be giving all sorts of goodies to people. So we'll make sure that that's in the uh, show notes as well. And it's too bad we don't have more time because I'd love to go into it. But if you can give us a link where we can look at that and understand it, I think it would be great for people to have. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, okay. So we're at the time of the show where I'm going to ask you my favorite question, uh, which is all around if there was a museum in the world that was dedicated yeah. to the most important product, what do you think should be in that museum and why? Yeah. So that's a really interesting question. Uh, I'll, I'll say, and this will sort of mirror uh, some of the responses I've shared earlier is for me, something to go into the museum has to be something that has helped a lot of people. Uh, so that's one, one way of thinking about it. Second, that's disruptive or that's going to change behavior because changing behavior is very hard, right? And, uh, and is also something that has helped you grow constant learning, right? So I'd say the three products for me would be, one is GoFundMe. Like, look, especially over the last few years, we've seen how much it has helped, you know, people just randomly helping strangers. So that is just, we need more of that, right? Uh, the second is more personal, where I'd say I have tremendously benefited from this concept or this product podcast, right? Like many different companies have podcast apps, et cetera. But the whole concept, it's democratized learning. You can follow so many people and learn from them. That's been amazing, right? And the third thing is a relatively new startup. Um, they're based in New York, is Levels Health. And, uh, you know, for some, I have a sweet tooth. And uh, so eating is a problem. Uh, but there, and there have been a lot of solutions available where you put a patch on your, you know, arm and it'll measure your glucose and all of those things. But I thought that all the solutions available till now give you a number. And that number doesn't really help you. You have to then decipher what it means. And what Levels Health is doing is it's creating awareness around habits and behaviors and how to change that. So it's not just about the number, but it's about what the number means to you in your context and what action can you take. And I think given how big uh, you know, some of these health and food related problems are, they have this really enviable position of changing people's behavior and habits and developing better habits. So I, I'd call those three out. I love that. Uh, I'll have to check out Levels Health. It sounds really interesting. And I couldn't agree more with you on um, finding a way to, to productize the ability to give help and just help others for the sake of helping. And of course, podcasts. I'm obviously a fan. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to hear about you and your journey. And thank you for sharing some of the things that have been most helpful to you to learn along the way, but also that you get asked a lot. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate you having me over. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this, uh, Tiana. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.